Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Tom Coburn with me today. Tom is a co-founder and CEO of Jebit. Jebit is a platform that enables brands to capture consumer intentions, motivations, and preferences through beautiful experiences like quizzes. Uh, and I, of course, Tom will probably elaborate more about how they do that. Uh, and some of their customers include Expedia, Snapchat, uh, Procter and Gamble and the NFL. Uh, so, uh, really good, really good stuff there. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thankful to have you on. Uh, so set, set the scene for us, you know, for the people that don't know you, you know, where you grew up, uh, your family situation, what type of kid you were, things like that. Sure. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of Boston. A uh, specific town is Hopkinton. It's where the Boston Marathon starts, so 26 miles west of the city. And uh, yeah, I grew up with both my parents, two younger sisters, a dog, and I spent a lot of time on the golf course growing up. So I, uh, I got really into golf probably around the age of like 10 or 11. And uh, my parents would drop me off at 6 a.m. and pick me up at 8 p.m. and I would be there <laughs> all day trying to play. So I think that was the, uh, the first big passion in my life. And the first thing that I just like really dedicated myself to and, and gave it everything I had. I had three friends that would play with me all the time. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of my, my biggest passions growing up. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, just out of curiosity, now looking back in hindsight, you know, was entrepreneurship something that, uh, you did as a, as a kid or were thinking about as a kid, or did it come later in life? Not at all. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into the story, but I, I went to Boston College and I was there as a freshman in 2009 and entrepreneurship was nowhere near my radar. I was a biology major. I wanted to go be a doctor like my grandfather and uh, was, was definitely not a path I was thinking of. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned BC. Uh, I'm curious, you know, what was the I guess, what was the decision-making thought process uh, to go there? Yeah, it ended up being between Boston College and Colby, little small school up in the middle of Maine. So very different uh, environments, very different campuses, all that stuff. Uh, ultimately, I think there were two reasons that swung me to BC. One was, you know, with my desire to go be a doctor, I figured it'd be good to be right there in the heart of Boston and plenty of hospitals you can go get internships at, lab, labs you can go work at, all of that stuff. And then the other reason was I knew if I was sitting up in my dorm room in Maine watching a BC football game on Saturday, knowing that I could be there, I'd be very upset. So uh, I grew up being a BC football fan my whole life, you know, saw the Matt Ryan days when I was in high school. And uh, yeah, once I, once I had that opportunity to go be there, I, I wasn't passing that up. And I was front row with my chest painted for every, every BC football game. So that, that was me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Chestnut Hill uh, is a great atmosphere for some good uh, D1 football. Uh, so you, you said uh, pre, you said pre-med in theology. Is that what you said? Yeah, I started as a biology major and then I think it was sophomore year. I added a theology double major in two, which was also not on my radar at all. I, you know, Grew up going to church every Sunday. My parents raised me Catholic, but I, I didn't choose BC for that. Like that wasn't one of my factors in going there. And then, uh, yeah, I ended up having an awesome, you know, at, at Boston College, you do have to take 
a couple of theology classes to graduate. So I figured I would just get them out of the way early and, you know, tried to knock them out. Uh, I think second semester freshman year and first semester sophomore year. And I just had an awesome professor that got me kind of really hooked on it. And I ended up taking a bunch of, a bunch of Christianity courses, but then a lot of like Buddhism courses and studying Eastern philosophies and things like that. And ended up just really enjoying what I was learning there and kept taking, taking more courses. And it wasn't one of those things where I thought, oh, let me go add a double major here. It was just one of those things where I realized, oh, I've now taken like 60% of the requirements <laughs> to get a major just yeah. out of my interests. I may as well, you know, take a few more of these and get the major. Major. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And so I read, uh, I don't know, your sophomore year, you got accepted to Tufts Medical School? Yeah, Tufts has a really cool uh, program that they run with, I don't know if they still run it, but when I was in school, they ran it with BC and I think a couple other schools in Boston. I want to say maybe like Tufts undergrad and maybe BU and Northeastern or something, but they, but between the schools they partnered with, they took a total of 20 students after your sophomore year. And the whole logic behind it was they wanted to have students entering their med school class that were more well-rounded and had time to explore other interests. Uh, you know, if you have any friends that were pre-med, you probably know they're in the lab all the time, you know, in class all the time, studying for the MCAT a bunch. Like it just, you have to do so much to get into medical school. And so their thinking was, hey, if we tell these 20 students after sophomore year they're in, based on, you know, whatever they'd accomplished by that point, then we didn't have to take the MCAT. We didn't have to worry about, you know, getting perfect grades for junior and senior year. We didn't have to worry about like working in a lab as an internship, senior year, junior year, things like that. So it just gave you a ton of freedom. Um, now, ironically, they weren't thinking someone would go uh, develop a passion for entrepreneurship and end up yeah. dropping out of school to start a company and not going to medical school. Uh, but I, I remember having a conversation with the Dean and, um, when I, I left Boston College my senior year to go pursue Jebit full time and I asked, you know, BC told me they'd give me a year and I asked Tufts Med School to give me a year and they very nicely did. And then, you know, after the second year, the, the dean at Tufts Med said I needed to make a decision. <laughs> you know, by that point, we had raised a couple of million dollars for Jebit and we had like 12 employees. So, it, you know, there wasn't a decision to be made. I was sticking with Jebit, but uh, his son ended up coming and interning with us one summer. So that, wow. was, that was fun and kind of a full, full, a full circle. circle. Yeah. yeah. So you've mentioned it a little bit, but you know, how, how does a, a pre-med theology person end up, uh, getting into business? Yeah. I, uh, so me and my friends went to the student activities fair, uh, start of freshman year, you know, September freshman year. And, you know, you're walking through all these booths of all the clubs you can do and all the sports teams you can join and all this stuff. And, uh, we walked by this sign that said Boston College Venture Competition, pitch your business idea and win $10,000. And, you know, we, we probably wrote our names down for like 30 different clubs that day. It wasn't <laughs> yep. like, you know, but we were looking for something we could all do together. Uh, you know, I was studying bio. My two friends were studying business. I liked playing golf. One of them liked playing tennis. One of them liked playing video games a lot. Like we had all these different interests and we were trying to find that one club we could all do. And when we were reviewing it all that night, we just decided like, let's do the business plan competition. It seems really fun. And I think it works this way at most schools, but you know, there were meetings all throughout the year to kind of like 
help you understand what it means to be an entrepreneur, how to come up with a good business plan, how to give a good pitch, et cetera. And it all culminated in the spring where you would pitch your idea or you'd submit a business plan and the top five teams would get to pitch their idea to a panel of judges, kind of like Shark Tank and uh, the top team would get $10,000. And so that's what we decided we were gonna do together. We kind of arbitrarily made the goal of we want to win this competition before we graduate. So we knew we had four shots at it. And uh, that was the spark that kind of got me off to even thinking about business ideas in general and, and trying to come up with a concept. And I, I should clarify, at the time, I was not actually thinking we were going to do the business. This was just for fun with my friends to come up with the idea and win the competition. And the school says you can do whatever you want with the prize money. So we were just going to pocket the money and I would be 1% less in debt for medical school. So I I was thinking about it. Uh, There weren't any plans to actually build a company with the prize money. Yeah. Uh, Two questions from that. I'm curious. So you talked about, you know, your friends meeting uh, consistently to talk about business ideas how did you, you know, college students aren't always disciplined. How did you approach that? And then two, there's the trust factor, right? I think everybody's afraid of giving away their, you know, best idea and not getting, you know, if it's not on paper that we're all owners to, I mean, where were you guys just that night? Like you were just naive. You just were, it was, what was the, what was the thinking there? Yeah. So on the first thing, um, I advise a lot of college entrepreneurs now. And so I totally know what you're saying, you know, nine out of 10, if not 99 out of hundred, never actually end up building the business. You know, there's a lot of people that are in college and they think, Oh, it'd be cool to start something. I've watched shark tank or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes with Jevit. There's a lot of things we did wrong, but I don't know. One of the things that was just innate to our team and how we were thinking about it was, okay, if we made the goal to win this thing by senior year, that's probably going to be really hard. We have to do stuff week in and week out to build the business, like to come up with an idea and figure out what it's going to be. And so we just had a process. We, we reserved, uh, there were conference rooms in, in O'Neill Library, if anyone knows BC, where you could uh, you know reserve a room. And we would reserve a room every Tuesday and every Thursday from 2 to 4 p.m. And those four hours every week were the time we came together and we would build the business. And we just kind of had this like innate understanding of like, you just don't miss that time. It doesn't matter if it's midterm week. It doesn't matter if you you know, went out too late last night and you're hung over, like whatever it was, it was just be there at that time and be a part of the team. And, and more importantly, make sure you were thinking and coming up with, with ideas all throughout the week. So you don't just show up there as the one person with no ideas, you know, and uh, we were really dedicated. We, we didn't take weeks off. We, we would even do calls over Christmas break and things like that when we were home to make sure we were moving things along. And, you know, I think it's the biggest mistake I see a lot of college entrepreneurs make is they just don't have that dedication day in and day out to keep building things. I mean, in the early days, it was at least making sure that two times a week we were doing stuff. And then as things actually started to grow, it was like, no, every day, what are you doing to move things along? And um, I'm sure part of that was kind of driven into me from my golf experience growing up where I, you know, I went to a town that had a very competitive golf team. We have multiple people from our town that are on the PGA tour now. So I 
you know, I knew if I was going to make that team, I had to really, really practice and, and work hard. And, um, you know, there was no one forcing me to be at the golf course every day. Like I loved it and I just wanted to go do it. And I think there was a lot of parallels here with this. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so in terms of IP or whatever, like you guys were just like, well, I'll be oh, yeah. there was 25% a second or like, like no matter, like no matter what happens, we're all co-owners, I guess, or what? Um, okay. Sorry. So you also asked a question before I didn't answer, which is yeah. what we thought about, like giving out the ideas and sharing ideas and stuff like that. And then was your other question, how did we split the equity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, cause I feel like that's why, I mean, in general in life, people just don't like to share ideas. And like, yeah. that's why I find this so fascinating because everybody's like, you know, they like to hide things or, not, or, you know, work in stealth or whatever it is, you know, and it, and here you have like, I don't know how many roommates you have, but like a group of people just being like, let's just come up with, you know, the best ideas we might have yeah. so freely. It, I mean, it, it sounds so, awesome. <laughs> so I never had any concern about sharing the idea with my co-founders. That, that part was very easy. That was just, I don't know, that was just obvious to me. I don't want to build a business by myself. I want to build it with a team. And, you know, in order to be part of the team, you got to all come together and share your ideas. So that, that was never a, a concern of mine. Um, I definitely in the very early days had the concerns though of sharing the idea with others, you know, whether that be some advisor you're meeting or some professor in the entrepreneurship program, or definitely other students that I knew were also trying to come up with ideas for the program. Like I was pretty closed off on that. And then I, I actually still remember it. It was, uh, there's a guy named Bill Clarico, who's also a Boston College grad. He started a company called WePay. Um, I don't know, he's probably six or seven years older than me, something like that. But he came to speak at BC and, you know, he's since gone on to sell his company for hundreds of millions of dollars. But at the time, him and his co-founder, Rich, had raised $10 million and they were, I don't know, they had to be 25, something like that. You know, they were right out of school and they had gone to BC and he came and gave a talk as part of the, the whole business plan program throughout the year. And I remember he talked about this specific thing and he said, you could take your top idea and you could put it in an envelope and write it down and you could send it to the five biggest competitors out there you think might start that. And he's like, I guarantee you they're, they're not going to do it. They won't be able to jump on it. And his point was, he used the analogy of a cruise ship and a jet ski. You know, if you're worried that, you know, Google or Facebook or some huge company is going to do this idea, they're this massive cruise ship coming along. And even if you fly by on a jet ski and you have a big dancer, this is the new idea, this is what you should do. Like they're the chances they're going to turn their whole cruise ship and go after you and beat you in that. Like, it's just hard versus you're this young, fast, nimble startup. And so his advice was get out there and share your idea. His advice was the opposite of how I've been reacting. It was get out there and share the idea with everyone and anyone you possibly can, because most likely people are going to hear your idea and they'll either not think it's a good idea, in which case you have nothing to worry about, or if they think it is a good idea, they're way more likely to either try to help you make introductions to you, et cetera, or try to join you than they are to say, oh, that idea is so good. Let me go start this on my own and compete with that person. Um, and so I remember that talk really just like changed things for me. And having been doing Jebit for almost a decade now, I can say everything Bill was saying is totally true. Like from that point on, I just went and shared our ideas with everyone. And I found so many more people would help me and make intros for me and things like that. And um, it's definitely how I'd recommend being as an early stage entrepreneur. Yeah. 
So you guys are are meeting and uh it, I guess when uh when do you come or uh, come up I guess with the initial idea of Jebit and is that is that what you guys presented at the case competition? Yeah, so I'll share a little bit about our process, but the spark notes is Jebit didn't come until sophomore year. So it had we never came up with a freshman year and it was the fifth idea we actually tried working on and tried to start. So our process was we'd come meet every week. We'd all share whatever ideas we've been thinking about throughout the week. And, you know, you kind of train your brain to just go out throughout the world and observe things and find problems and try to come up with ideas. And when we would meet, we'd go around the circle and share the ideas. And if we had an idea that all three of us really liked, it would move into the next kind of category. And the next category was to go do some research and Google it and see what else is out there. And, you know, I would say nine out of 10 ideas all three of us didn't like, right? Someone had some issue with it or didn't like it or didn't think it was a good idea. So it was really hard to get over that bar of an idea all three of us liked. And then it was even harder, the odds were even lower to then go Google it and not find three pages of companies that already do that. So to get something over both bars where we decided, wow, everyone likes this and we don't see a ton of competition out there, let's actually work on it. That only happened with four ideas before Jebit. And they were all over the place for the record. First semester freshman year, we did a medical device and then we realized, wow, no one is taking four college or three college freshmen seriously when none of us have medical degrees or medical <laughs> training or anything like that. Yeah. Um, we tried to start an athletic apparel company, but people were like, there's no way you're going to get the funding to compete with Nike and Under Armour and all of that. We tried starting this e-commerce idea. Like we were all over the place. We'd We'd work for on average probably two or three months on an idea until we realized for one reason or another, this isn't going to be the one. And then when we shut that down, we just go right back to the same cycle of sharing all new ideas and researching and, and all of that. Um, and yeah, the idea for Jebit, <clears throat> excuse me, came out um, first, late first semester, sophomore year, like late October of sophomore year, I was in an airport going on a golf trip and ended up coming up with the idea but the guys actually really didn't like it at first I remember I came back and I pitched them the idea and they thought it was a bad idea and to me I just kind of threw the idea in the mental trash can right it was like we'd come up with so many ideas before that were bad I wasn't faced by it at all um, but a few months later it had just really still resonated with me and um, I couldn't get it out of my head and that's kind of how I knew it was different than the other ones and when March or April came around, whenever it was that we had to submit a business plan, we had kind of just decided before we were going to shut down the e-commerce idea we were working on. And so we had nothing going into the business plan competition. And um, the other guys on the team were kind of like, well, it's fine. Maybe let's just not submit something this year. Maybe we'll just submit next year. And we had submitted something freshman year and not made it past the first round. And to me, it was like, if our goal is to win this <clears throat> by a senior year, we have to show progress each year. Mm. So the idea of not even submitting sophomore year, like even if we submitted and got denied in the first round again, then we at least made it as far as we made it freshman year. Yeah. Um, and so Jebit was the only, was the least bad idea we had, I guess, at the time. So we submitted it for the competition that year. And, you know, one thing led to another from there. And, and you guys won that competition? We tied for first place okay. that year. Cool. Yeah. So instead of $10,000, we got 7,500 <clears throat> because okay. they split first and second place. But yeah, I remember standing up on stage with this big check, 
just being like, oh, wow, we, we hit the goal two years sooner than we thought we yeah. would. And yeah. it was a, it was a wild ride from, you know, six weeks earlier, we're sitting there thinking we don't even have a good idea to submit this year. Like, let's just chalk it up and, you know, get ready again for junior year to, oh my God, we just won this thing, you know, two years earlier than planned. Yeah. And I know the, the business model has changed uh, a couple of times at that time. What was, what was um, Jebit? So at that time when we won the competition, there yeah. was no business or product yet. We were literally mm-hmm. just 10 PowerPoint slides, but the, uh, the idea that won the competition, which is very different from what we actually do today, but has, you know, a very loose alignment to it was um, we were going to pay people cash to answer questions every time they watch a pre-roll video ad all throughout the web. Mm. So, you know, if you're ever on Hulu or YouTube and there's an ad before the show, we weren't trying to ask survey questions like you might see on YouTube today. Um, We were going to ask you like memory recall questions. So if you watched a car commercial, we were going to ask you to like write in how many miles per gallon were in that car. So you proved you actually paid attention to the ad and learned something because, you know, the biggest problem in online advertising is wasted ad spend and, you know, buying all these ads that no one ever sees or views or clicks on or anything like that. So that was the idea we pitched to win the competition. We never ended up even launching that idea for a whole variety of reasons, but it did lead to multiple pivots from there to end up where we are today. Okay. So you win the competition. Do you guys then decide you're going to go for it that summer? No. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, that's ended up how it happened, but it wasn't from winning the competition. So we won the competition. Um, Two of the judges came up to us, um, a guy named Dan Nova and a guy named Peter Bell, who were both Boston College alumni and both investors at at the time at Highland Capital uh, in downtown Boston. And uh, Peter told us about this summer program that Highland runs where they take one student, they take five student teams in from all around the country. And like at most there'd be one team from BC that gets to go, but he really wanted a BC team to be there and he liked our idea. So we should submit an application. And we submitted an application and ended up getting into that program. And um, as part of the program, we got $15,000 office space for the summer and mentorship from them and their different like portfolio company CEOs all throughout the summer. And, you know, I was going to go work at Newton Wellesley Hospital that summer. My co-founders were going to go work like at EMC and at an investment bank as, yeah. you know, their internships. And once we got into that program, I think we all kind of looked at each other and said, wow, this feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Let's do it. So we, we uh, you know, decided to quit our jobs for the summer and do that program. So there we were with basically $22,000 in the bank. We brought on a, a freshman engineer because none of the three of us could code. And we realized, okay, this is getting real. And we're going to need someone who knows how to code. And uh, we set out for that summer. And by the end of that summer, you know, one of my co-founders had quit. The other two were thinking about quitting, but I was fired up to go build the business at that point. So that's the summer that changed things for me from this is just a fun thing I'm doing with my friends and I'm definitely still going to medical school to, wow, I'd actually like to try to make this happen and maybe put med school on hold if we can actually get enough traction to make this a real business. I'm, I'm curious, how did your parents react to you wanting to uh, be at Highland Capital instead of working at Newton Wellesley? I don't remember there being any 
issues with that that okay. summer right. there oh, were good. definitely some concerns when a year and a half later i told them i was leaving bc mm. was going to do the company full-time and medical school might not happen anymore i think that was more the moment where i remember having to take them out to dinner and talk them through it and all yeah. that but uh i think the summer it was like yeah whatever it's summer yeah. after sophomore year like go you know go do something interesting and fun. I don't, I don't, I think they're pretty supportive of that. Okay, cool. Uh, so you have the summer at Highland Capital. Um, you know, what, how does, I guess, how does that go? And what, what, how, I guess you, you said a couple of things in terms of your co-founders feeling like they didn't want to be on this journey, but you yeah. felt fired up. Um, I guess what happens so that's going into your junior year now? Correct. Okay. Yep. So the summer was a total failure in terms of actually accomplishing any business goals. But it okay. was, like I just said, it was the spark for me of, okay, I actually want to go do this. And all I mean by that, the total failure piece is like, the first thing that happened when we got there was the investors at Highland helped us realize we have no idea what we're doing to go build this like thing that follows people around the web and integrates with ad servers and pays you money and deals with fraud and identity verification and all like it was just so far beyond what one single freshman engineer from bc was going to be able to build but they helped us scale back the idea to like a proof of concept we could launch to prove any validation and you know so probably within two or three weeks of being there that summer we had repositioned the business as we're going to build our own website, jebit.com, only for college students where they can come and create an account using their .edu email. So now we would know there's just one email for one person. So people aren't scamming us out of the money. We're going to pay them. And then we would get brands to advertise on that site where people could watch their video ad or go to their website or whatever and answer some questions. And the model was we would charge the brand 50 cents per correct answer. And we'd keep 25 cents for ourselves and give 25 cents out to the student. And that product we actually launched and students ended up earning at a rate of $19 an hour, which if you know what most college kids make for their job, it's a appealing thing for them that they can sit there in their dorm room and answer questions about brands and make money. And so, you know, by early July, we knew that was going to be the concept. And then, you know, our engineer spent the rest the next two months building that website and me and my two other co-founders spent the next two months going door to door, trying to get every local business in Boston to put you know, 500 or $1,000 into this website. And, you know, by the, by August, we had walked into 500 companies and hadn't closed a single deal. And that's when one of my co-founders quit. He was just like, this sucks. Like we're literally walking door to door sales every day. And yeah. we've had the door slammed in our face 500 times. Like clearly nobody wants this product. Um, so he quit. My other co-founder was kind of right on the edge of quitting at that time. You know, like whenever you see a co-founder leave, it, you know, normally makes everyone else look in the mirror and question things, which yeah. to me, it was just like, we got to double down harder and figure this out. But to my other co-founder, he was kind of one foot in, one foot out. And by the end of that summer, to give our engineer credit, the website was pretty much done, but we had closed one deal for $200. So we were very, very far away from actually having a business, but the thing that just like got me fired up that summer was every Wednesday at lunch, the investors at Highland would bring in one of their CEOs to have lunch with us. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was just us and four other college teams. So it's a room of, I don't know, 15 people. 
and we'd have an hour and a half, two hour lunch, and they would just tell their whole founding story, like kind of similar to the conversation we've been having so far. Yeah. And I just saw all these patterns by the end. It was like almost every story was, we had this crazy idea. No one thought it was a good idea. We built a team, half the co-founders left, you know, maybe we raised some money, maybe we didn't, but inevitably we hit this really critical time where it wasn't working and everybody had to stop taking salaries and it looked like it was going to fail, but then we just kind of grinded through and boom, 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 X, Y, Z happened. And fast forward 10 years, we built a billion dollar company. You know, that's like this yeah, part yeah. of this, this pattern that I kept seeing. And I just remember thinking, you know, A, I was obviously really grateful because I had already had the Tufts acceptance thing like we talked about. So mm-hmm. I was able to give myself a little bit of freedom junior and senior year to not you know, study for the MCATs, worry about all my grades, et cetera. But I more just remember thinking like, when else are we going to have an opportunity like this? Like we have these mentors at Highland, we have $22,000 given to us. Like we're a bunch of college sophomores, like who are we to quit now? Cause we've had like a couple bad months in the summer, you know, if you really want to do this, you know, like I think my co-founder leaving, like, I think he just realized he didn't really want to do this. You know, he didn't really want to go work all these crazy hours when we're in college and there's so much fun stuff to do and things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, I still lived with him for the rest of college. He's still one of my good friends. I was just yeah. in his wedding, all those things, but you know, it's not for everyone to want to go through the like ridiculous grind of building a company, but yeah, I just got hooked that summer. So that's why I, you know, I remember sitting down with Peter Bell that August, one of the, the mentors from Highland. And I remember telling him I, I wanted to go raise $250,000 in, in funding and I was thinking of leaving school. And he, he very nicely asked me a few questions about the state of the business, which revealed we'd close one customer for $200. And yeah. he very politely told me, there's no way in hell anyone's going to give us money. Right <laughs> now. And, uh, yeah. But he helped me work through my biggest challenge, which was if I'm pouring hundred hours a week and now and not getting anything out of it, how the hell am I going to go back to school where I have to go to class and at least put time into that and still want to have time to see my friends and all that? Like, how am I going to balance doing all that but trying to get this business running? And he was the one that gave me the idea of going back and building a team of other students on campus. And he was like, there's a bunch of other kids interested in entrepreneurship. They might not have an idea yet. They might not have the 22,000 you have yet or won the competitions you guys have won or gotten the mentors you guys have won so or earned. So go recruit a team. And so I went and recruited a team of 15 students that eventually grew to over 50 students. And that's how we built the business for a year and a half while we were still in school. Gotcha. So you're a junior and into your senior year, you're, you're still going to school full-time and then running this on the side. Correct. Yeah. I remember I'd be sitting in like microbiology class trying to take notes, but like answering questions to marketers at the same time, just it was a crazy time, but yes, that's what I did for three semesters. Yeah. And, um, I guess what made you then decide to go all in, you know, I I think you said your senior year, you decided to, uh, yeah, leave. Yeah. I, I loved my time at BC. It was awesome. I think first semester of senior year was my worst semester for like my own mental health. Like I was, trying to still see my friends and have a social life. I was trying to still go to class and like not fail everything. And then I was trying to get the business going at the same time. And I was just feeling stretched between all three. And so it was pretty clear to me at that point that the business had become my passion way more than, you know, studying science or going to med school at the time, which were still things I loved. It wasn't like I hated that. 
But um, I just got this vision in my head of, well, I could just have an off-campus apartment, still see all my friends and do Jebit. It's just the school part that's taking up so much time right now. And so um, that's when I did go out and raise $250,000. We were, you know, the business was further along than we actually had, you know, a real business, granted a small business, but a real business. And um, once I raised that money, which I think closed in like November, um, I then started having the conversations with my different co-founders and some of the students that have been part of that initial 15 person team. And um, some of the early co-founders weren't willing to drop out. So that was when they kind of left the company, but me and two of the guys that were part of that 15 that had come on agreed to drop out and the three of us dropped out and, uh, you know, had the conversation with our parents and all of that. But, you know, we used the money we raised to get ourselves an off-campus apartment and, um, to me, it was absolutely the right decision. Like I was able to then see all my friends for what was second semester of their senior year, my senior year, however you want to talk about it. And, yeah. uh, and also go all in on the business at the same time. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, raising 250,000 as a, as a junior slash senior, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty difficult in terms of, you know, I, I think, uh, investors are going to be hesitant, you know, just given your age and, in college and things like that. How did you, how were you able to convince people or do you have any general advice on pitching investors? Yeah. So the people that ended up leading around Boston Seed Capital, by the time they led the round, I had probably known them for a year. There were three partners there uh, and I had met with each of them multiple times and I had dropped, uh, you know, one page, uh, investor update, even though I didn't have any investors, I made a one page investor update every week. And I dropped it in their inbox every month on the first day of the month for all those, you know, 11 or 12 months, whatever it was. So my only point there, um, there's a great saying, I think it's Mark Suster says like investors invest in, uh, lines, not dots, meaning like every time he talks to an entrepreneur is a dot, it's like one time meeting them. But when you connect all the dots together over time, you can see the line and you can see, you know, how much you do or don't believe in this business. And so from my experience, that's been totally true, you know, and I should clarify Boston Seed was one of like 20 investors I had met that I was doing this with over like a year and a half. So, you know, sure. By the time they invested, there'd probably been some investors that had only gotten six updates because I had met them later, but there were definitely some that had gotten 18 updates because I'd been doing this for much longer and they just happened to be the one that, you know, for whatever reason, saw something in our team, you know, and decided they were going to invest. Um, you know, I can definitely say now it was it was something they saw in us over the idea because the idea wasn't that good of an idea. We ended up <laughs> shutting that idea down and evolving it to what we do today. But um, yeah, I think it's just that that persistence and that dedication and them seeing that, OK, we're not going anywhere like we're going to keep building this thing. And um yeah, that would, that'd be my guess of, of where they were coming from. Okay. So that 250 came from one in one company. No, it didn't. There's actually a little more to the story okay. right. than that. So we, they did 150 of the 250 okay. uh, and we ended up extending the round out to 500 by the end. Cause we hit the 250 and closed it, but then more people wanted to come in. Um, but the, the actual thing that I think kickstarted Boston Seed to give us the money was I noticed that there was a uh, marketing conference in Boston uh, and there was going to be a Shark Tank style competition 
where they had five marketing executives on a panel and they were going to have five teams pitch and they had promised that the investors were going to give out at least a hundred thousand dollars, maybe more. It was up to them. You know, okay. they, must have, they must have each agreed they were going to invest 20,000 or something like that ahead of time. Yeah. And so, and I saw that one of the, the judges was a guy named Dharmesh Shah, who's the founder of HubSpot, you know, big multi-billion dollar now public company, marketing tech company based out of Boston. And so I remember telling my co-founders, you know, we got to get in this, we've got to pitch it. And, but I also remember that uh, Dave, one of the uh, Boston Seed partners was one of the guys who was going to be choosing which five companies get to pitch. And so in my mind, that was going to go against us, right? Because he'd known me for a year at this point and hadn't given us money. Um, and so I was just like, all right, if we just submit an application, like our chances are probably low. And then I saw that it's four are going to get in by application. One is going to get in by audience choice. So mm -hmm. if you want to submit to the audience choice, you know, fill out your blurb here, you can be one of the, the votes. And so I mean, look, we had a website of, I think, 50,000 college kids that would click on anything we wanted for 25 cents. So we made our own campaign on our own platform. We got like <laughs> 10,000 kids to go oh, in and vote for Jevit and paid them 25 cents each or whatever. And it just, you know, we were 100x more votes than the next highest company That's or whatever. Awesome. So long story short, we got the audience choice spot. We went and gave the pitch. You actually can still find it on YouTube somewhere, but we're in like full suits going in giving this pitch. Yeah. And uh, Darmesh, who had never met us before, liked something in the pitch. And he announced in front of everyone he was going to invest in Jebit. Um, and the next day I got the call from Boston Seed and they said, hey, we want to lead you around and do this. You know, So I think... I tell this to entrepreneurs trying to raise their first round all the time. I mean, the absolute hardest part is getting the first check. You know, mm -hmm. I'd been technically trying for a year and a half, but I'd really been trying for probably six months by the time this happened to raise and Darmesh committed that night, Boston Seed committed the next day. I remember they made a couple intros to me of people that uh, they thought I should talk to. And I remember going, having three or four breakfasts. I think I had four breakfasts and three of the people came in and invested, you know, 25, 50 and 50 after one breakfast. And here I am just being like, oh, I get it now. Like once you get the traction and once it's coming yeah. as an introduction from a well-respected firm like Boston Seed, fundraising becomes so much easier than it was before. And so I think the whole 250K came together in like two weeks after, you know, that first commitment from Darmesh. But, you know, as you've learned from this, it was, you know, two year, two and a half years of hard work, you know, before that. Yeah. So you, you now have $500,000. You're running it full time. It's still the, the, the brands paying the yeah. kids for the quizzes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when does that, because obviously you guys do a totally different business model now. Yeah. When does that change? Yeah. So the spark notes from there, we leave school um, in the spring of 2013. We joined Techstars Boston, which is a three month long accelerator program in Boston. Uh, graduating from that in May, we raised another 1.3 million. Um, so now we're sitting there with, you know, $1.8 million raised. Um, a bunch of our friends that have been working on the business were now graduating, right? They were seniors graduating BC. So we convinced a handful of them 
to come join us full time and we paid them salaries with that 1.8 million. Granted, the salaries they took were like a third of what they could have taken if they'd gone and worked at a place like HubSpot or one of those much bigger companies. And the eight of us all moved into one house together uh, right near Boston College's campus. And we set out to just build the business full time. We got an office. And so now it felt, you know, like a real company. You know, we had the money raised. We had eight full time employees, bet an office we were going to every day, all that. And um, it was later that year. I think it was, uh, let's say, Q4 of 2013. I remember we went to a board meeting, which so we didn't create a board until we raised that 1.3 million. So, uh, you know, to put this into context, this is probably my second or third board meeting I've done with this group. And, you know, the most of them have just given me money in the last few months. And I remember we went into the board meeting and I said, I think there's two reasons why this is never going to be a really big business that we're struggling with right now. One is all we are seeing that all of our users are just coming to the website to get paid the money and they don't care about the brands they're learning about. And we mm. really want to create genuine relationships between brand and consumers. And we think this whole idea of just paying them has created the wrong type of interaction between brand and consumer. Um, the second was because this was all happening on Jebit.com, we had to, it was a marketplace. We had to both bring the brands and go recruit the students. And that was just really hard for an eight person company with basically a one person marketing team to do both of those things. Um, and I, I remember our board listened very patiently and heard my whole pitch of all the flaws in this business and why we wanted to pivot the business to something different. And, you know, then they asked me the million dollar question, which is great, you know, based on all these problems, what should we pivot to? And I remember I was very naive and I said, oh, I haven't figured that out yet. I'm just telling you all the problems with our current business. And uh, thankfully, they reminded me that they invested in us, not the idea. And they supported the idea of the pivot. Um, and their one request, since we didn't have an idea yet, was we just stop spending any new money, like don't hire any new people or things like that. Just keep the team small of what it is. And and I agreed. I remember we set some milestones of once we hit XYZ revenue, we can start hiring people again. And I remember looking at that first milestone or we could hire like three more people. And I was like, oh, we'll hit that in like two or three months. And it took us two and a half years to hit that. So we then entered a very dark period from all of 2014, all of 2015 and the first half of 2016 until we finally figured out what this business was going to be. So during that time period, are you still running that college branding business or are you, are you guys fully focused on what's yeah, our new great, idea? Great question. Um, for about six months, we ran the business as well. Cause that thing was actually bringing in revenue. I mean, mm -hmm. we were doing, I don't know, 500 K a year in revenue or something like that. So it was meaningful for us at the time. Um, after six months, we just realized we're so far from figuring out what the business is going to be. And this is so hard trying to do both we ended up just shutting it down six months later. Like we kind of hit that moment where it's like, we can either keep chugging along doing this thing that we don't all believe is ever going to be. The, the other thing I should say, like we were setting our sights really high. Like we wanted to go build a massive company, you know, like in startups, everyone throws out the, you know, billion dollar valuation, the unicorn, et cetera, like less important to hit that specific valuation, but that's the, that was the North star we were thinking yeah. about. That was the type of scale we were thinking about. So, you know, could we have built this like 
incentivized website of paying kids money to answer questions. Could we have built that up to millions of revenue and maybe even sold it for, you know, whatever, tens of millions of dollars or something? We probably could have, but that wasn't what we were passionate about. That wasn't what we dropped out of school to do. And so, yeah, we hit, hit this moment six months later, probably mid-2014, where we just shut it down so we could go focus entirely on what the future was going to be. But again, that took us like two years to, to actually land on. And there were little spurts of getting revenue here and there, but there were multiple chunks of three, four months in that period where we did no revenue because we were trying to figure out what the hell is this thing going to be? Yeah. And so how do you come up with, you know, the present business model? Lots of small pivots over mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, you know, we, what we eventually realized, um, I'll kind of give you a couple of the main things that got a little bit of revenue. We got a little bit of revenue by uh, letting companies overlay a bar on top of their website that would drop down and ask you some questions when you land on the website and like mm-hmm. guide you to the right part of the site based on, on how you answer. And we started doing some revenue with that. Um, we called it post-click engagement because the idea was you would go buy ads and people would come to your website and then we would engage them after the click of the ad. Um, then we realized that wasn't ever going to work because we started seeing more and more traffic was coming from mobile. And, you know, when you shrunk down their website to this small screen and then you tried to add our little bar over it, like it was just a crappy user experience. But one of our, is actually one of our marketing guys who's technical, he had the insight to manipulate some of the like CSS that controls the front end of what our little bar looks like. And this is a simple innovation, but he made the bar take up the whole screen. And then he made it look really nice. So now we basically were an overlay of the website instead of something that's trying to integrate with the website. And we started pitching the concept of mobile interactive content. So what we basically said was, you know, you have this, let's say you're a company that sells clothes, you know, you got a bunch of jeans and bags and whatever. Uh, you know, you've built this website that you built for desktop and all you've done is make it responsive for mobile. You've you made it so everything can fit but you didn't really design it to be mobile first. And so you're missing out on creating the best experience for your customers. And more and more, we're seeing you're getting more traffic through people swiping up on Instagram or coming in through Facebook or even just doing email on their phone. And you're just seeing more and more of this mobile traffic and you're missing a revenue opportunity if you provided them a better experience. And they'd say, interesting, show us more. And we'd show them how they could use Jebit to make this beautiful mobile first quiz that would ask you five questions and recommend the right pair of jeans for you. So instead of you having to scroll and look at 50 pairs of jeans, you just boom, 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 five questions about myself. Here's the right pair of jeans, save me time, et cetera. And uh, that started getting traction. We got that up to like a million or 2 million in revenue, something like that. And we raised a little bit more money. We kept the company going. We were starting to kind of get our mojo back. This is late 2016, early 2017. And then we realized in early 2017, the big vision for Jebit that we totally stumbled into is not in just the experience itself, but it's in the fact that when you go through that quiz and that example for the genes, you just answered five questions about yourself and you just gave really valuable first party self-declared data with consent to that brand. And for anyone in the marketing world today, they know there's a whole change in legislation right now around privacy and brands are being forced to go get data with consent directly from their customers rather than the way the internet's run for a long time, which is you buy third-party data from 
lot of providers and you don't know where the data comes from and consumers don't know their data is being shared. And I'm sure you've seen headlines in the news around some of that stuff. So since 2017, we've really been paving the way for what we call declared data, but, you know, basically getting questions answered in a way that is much more valuable and engaging to the consumer than a survey to the point where like our experiences get 10 times more data than just a traditional like survey monkey survey or something like that, because it gives this real genuine value to the consumer. And so, you know, that's kind of your, I guess, three-step journey. And it took us a couple of years about how we finally landed on, you know, the business that's now working well, you know, we've mm-hmm. raised 25 million in funding, we're scaling and growing nicely. And there's more and more demand right now, you know, with each month that goes by for getting this type of data and providing these types of experiences if you're a big brand. I'm curious. So basically, I guess since 2017, you've had the existing business model. How has how have you managed, you know, you, you were eight people and then you've obviously grown from there. How have you managed hiring and, you know, kind of, you know, corporate culture and, and yeah. vision and all that as you've grown? Yeah. Um, there's obviously all different types of like leaders and CEOs. Um, I mean, you already know some of my background, so it was obvious to me from the early days, I had none of the hard skills to like build the business, meaning I wasn't an engineer. I didn't know how to code. I wasn't, you know, I hadn't taken finance courses and new accounting or any of that stuff. So I made the decision really early on of, I'm just going to focus on building the team and building the culture and creating the environment. And then I'm just going to go try to find people way smarter and way better than me at each of the functions that the business needs. Um, And so I only say that to say, I try to put a ton of time into thinking about culture and things like that. And I realized something around 20, 25 people, which was, I tried to work really hard in the early days to build strong, trusting relationships with every person on our team. Um, and I wanted them to feel like they could come to me with any problem or any issue, right? Whether that was a interpersonal problem at Jebit, whether that was a business problem they saw, whether it was a personal problem they were having that had nothing to do with Jebit. It was just like so obvious to me, I want to create an environment where people feel comfortable going all the way up to the top, right? To the CEO and being able to bring everything to the table. And then of course, it's my job to receive all the problems, go through it all and decide which ones we're actually going to solve and how we're going to handle, you know, the different problems being arisen. But I really didn't want to create the environment where nothing is servicing up and there's all this, all these problems that the management team isn't aware of. Um, And then on top of that, I've always wanted to create an environment where people really feel like if they give Jebit everything, like they're they're going to get a ton out of it, right? We always talk about uh, a saying, what you put in is what you get out, which is something my eighth grade science teacher used to always tell us, you know? And what I didn't want to create is an environment where people feel like I just come in, my boss gives me 10 things to do. And once they're done, I, I can sign off for the day and that's it. I really want to create an environment where people feel like I can grow and I can learn. And if I take the initiative and I give this a lot, I'm going to get a lot out of it personally for whatever that means. It's different for different people. Some people came to Jebit because they wanted to see how a startup works. So they go start their own company someday. Some people came to Jebit because they wanted to be in a fast growing environment and they wanted to go try to lead a sales team one day or whatever it might be. Some people, you know, as the company grew, came and were pretty transparent about like, I just want to work in a great place with a great environment. And you know, I don't want to kill myself and work a crazy amount of hours, but I'll do a good job. And like work-life balance is what's most important to me. Like it's different for everyone. 
um, I'm kind of rambling, but the point I was going to make is I really tried to get to know everyone early on, learn who they are, what motivates them, build that trusting relationship with them. And around 20, 25 people, I saw that started to break down. I just physically couldn't do it between yeah. running the business and maintaining all these relationships and having a social life outside of work. It just wasn't possible. And I started seeing for the first time that um, I was like the CEO that new employees didn't feel was approachable and didn't feel like they could bring problems mm -hmm. to. And I started seeing for the first time employees would make a decision or hide information to preserve their job longer, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't the right thing for Jebit. You know, when mm -hmm. you're 12 people, everyone puts Jebit first. You know, mm -hmm. one of our values was team first and like everyone puts the company first because it's so small and that you just, that's the type of person you attract, et cetera. But as you become 30, 40 people, et cetera, you know, it's just kind of human nature as you start to get more to that scale. So um, I hired a chief of staff really early on. I brought on uh, a woman named Meredith who I've known for a large part of my life, who I know is like very culturally aligned with me. And she, you know, has worked really hard to basically become a second version of me and being a source that people can go to, you know, and people will go to her today because they want to ask their boss for a raise, but they don't know how to have the conversation or they'll go to her today because, you know, they don't feel like product and engineering are working as well together as they could be. And they have an idea of how we can make it better. Or, you know, they see a market opportunity we should go after, or they have some personal problem going on and they need to take time off from work, like whatever it is. Um, she's worked really hard to become that person as well. I'm still there for anyone that, you know, wants it, but it's just, uh, I've, I've grown a lot in my understanding of what it can mean now to be a brand new employee at a 60 person company and, you know, have it be like, yeah, just go right to the CEO for that problem. I've just learned that's a big hurdle for a lot of people to, to get over. So, um, yeah, I think hiring Meredith early on and having her grow with the company has been, you know, a really, really good decision in the long run. In the early days, right. Uh, you know, now obviously you have a, a, a chief product officer, but in the early days when you're hiring like an engineering talent or a product person, you know, how do you evaluate the job that they're doing? You know, because like, for, for example, like, you know, the, the engineer that you had, that was like a BC freshman yeah. and he finished it in two months, but he could have taken four or five months. Like, how yeah. did you, how were you? Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, he, so that guy ended up leaving the company and uh, a new guy came in and new guy looked at all of his code. And I remember the new guy, like he didn't go on spring break. He just locked himself in a room. And in like 10 days, he rebuilt what the first guy had built in like a year. So, mm. so to your point, yeah, I had no idea. Like I yeah. just didn't know how to code. I was just finding people you know, I would evaluate them from culture fit standpoint, obviously, but in terms of their technical talent, no clue. So, and then obviously as we grew, I just relied on the engineers we had to, you know, do that part of the interview and, and make that process. But I, I'm sure if you talk to our CTO, Matt today, who's been with me basically since day one, he was one of the guys that was working with us when we were in college. He was one of the guys that came and took a job full-time right when we raised the money when he was graduating um, I'm sure he'd tell you we made a ton of mistakes in the early days with hiring engineers. We thought we're going to be great that ended up not being great. Like that's just part of, I think that's part of any early stage startup, but definitely part of an early stage startup where none of the founders have ever done this before. Yeah. I am also curious, you know, um, 
a lot of this has to do, you know, your success has to do with the actual convincing, right? The, the brands have to now accept your idea or try it out your, your platform. Uh, do you have any keys on, you know, obviously at the beginning of the interview, I mentioned, you know, the NFL, PNG, Snapchat, Expedia, you know, how has that selling process been, or have there been some keys to, you know, getting that type of top tier client? Um, my, one of my co-founders, Jonathan, had the brilliant idea in the early days. He went in, because this is probably obvious, but I should say it. Those logos you're listening today are not the logos we were working with in 2013, 2014, yeah. 2015. It yeah. took us a while to get there. But um, Jonathan had the idea to go on LinkedIn, find a bunch of recently retired CMOs, and create an advisory board of them, where it was their job to go walk us in to meetings at a bunch of their CMO friends that were still working. Um, and it was awesome because you had these CMOs at the end of their career that still wanted to do a little bit of stuff, but you know didn't want a job still as the full-time CMO of Nissan or whatever it was. And they would walk us into these rooms where it was just our job to showcase the technology, showcase our passion and willingness to do everything for them to make them successful but it came in with the blessing that we'd already been vetted by this other CMO that they trusted. And that's how we landed a lot of the early Fortune 500 brands we got. And then from that point, it kind of becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy or positive feedback loop, whatever. Like, you know, once you have the NFL on board, it's easier to talk to the NHL and the NBA and show them what the NFL is doing. And then once you have the NBA and the NHL on board, like we have today, it's much easier to go to any sports so you can say, we work with the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL. You should try it too. And they're like, oh, yep. <laughs> and you've been doing that for years. Wow, there must be something here. If they keep renewing and they keep using it, you know, they must be getting value out of it. So, you know, that kind of, that story I just shared with the sports league started happening in every other, you know, vertical that we were working in. Yeah. You uh, earlier talked about having a board. I'm curious, you know, I think you had one uh, prior to your 1.3 million I think you had a board. That's when we created it. When or we were, when that's when you created it. Yep. How did you convince those people to be on the board? Um, you know, especially, you know, somewhat you were somewhat early stage at that point. Yeah. That part wasn't really a challenge. I mean, the investors that gave us money got a board seat. That was pretty straightforward. They want a board seat so they can watch after their investment. And then we had the ability to add. So the board was basically just me and my co-founder, two of the investors. And then we had the ability to add uh, an independent board seat, someone who wasn't a founder and wasn't an investor. And uh, through the Techstars program, we had met like 50 plus mentors. So we had a ton of people we really liked. And we just kind of narrowed it down to the three we liked best and reached out to all of them and they were all interested. So we just kind of narrowed it down to the one we ultimately uh, brought on. But I think a lot of people like advising and working with early stage startups. I think it's a fun, you know, mental challenge for a lot of people, especially ones that are just part of a much bigger, slower moving company. So um, yeah, that, that part wasn't a challenge. Yeah. And uh I'm curious, you know, how do you look at the future of Jebit? Do you, um, are you looking at, 
you know, will there be other product line or service platforms in the future? Do you, how do you approach that aspect of, you know, as you go into work every day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there will be, we're working on things now. We're always trying to innovate and expand what we can offer. Um, but now we're in a really exciting place, which took us years to get to, obviously, where the core product we have is in a lot of demand and there's a lot of people that want it every day. So most of my day right now is going into scaling challenges, right? You know, how to optimize our sales process and train new sales reps, how to hire more great sales and marketing talent and get those people on, how to make sure that the customers we have today are getting the same level of service from our customer success team. We expect that obviously it just becomes harder as you hire more people and you have to train them on everything. So um, that that's where a lot of my time and energy goes today, but it's obviously fun and exciting because you work so hard to get to this point where there actually is something really scalable um, that people really want. I'm curious, what is the day in the life of, uh, you know, Tom Coburn? Like, do you, do you have a certain amount for finance, certain amount for marketing, certain amount for HR? Like, how do you manage your, your working time? I think the fun part is there's no standard day. It's all, it always changes. Um, I try to get up early most mornings and I'm, I'm big into meditation now. That was one of the uh, theology classes I took in college. So I do that most mornings. I'm probably 50, 50 on if I get a workout in, I'm not as good at that as I'd like to be, but it is what it is. And then, then I'm on, I mean, now with COVID, I'm basically on zoom calls for 14 hours a day or whatever it is. I can normally get a couple hours in, in the morning. If I get up early enough of just like deep work time to do emails and I'll, you know, block off some time at the end of the day to do that. But most of my time is just on a bunch of zoom calls and it can be everything from, interviews to hire new people, to training for new employees, to I'll still jump on sales calls and try to help, you know, our sales reps book deals. I'll still jump on, you know, QBRs with current customers and make sure they're getting everything they need out of us. Um, you know, it's just obviously like my meetings with my management team, my one-on-ones of people that report into me. Um, if you look at my calendar, it's just a whole host of different Zoom calls basically all throughout the day of all different areas. Yeah. Do you um, look at the future for you as running this for the next, you know, however many years, 30, 40 years that you're, you know, a working professional or do you look at it like you hope to get bought out or do you not even think about those kind of things? I mean, we're a venture backed business. So, you know, by definition, it's most likely not the thing you're going to go run for 40 years or something like that. Um, you know, with a venture back business, you're either trying to IPO or you're going to sell the company someday. Um, in our specific world of marketing technology, the latter is way more likely. It's way more likely eventually you'd sell the company just because there's so many large companies in the marketing tech world. It's a very crowded space. So there's a lot of MA that happens in our industry. Um, so, you know, right now I'm just focused on scaling the business and growing and knowing if we just continue to have good quarter after good quarter, like we've been doing recently, you know, good things will happen. Um, but you know, eventually it would be one of those two things. Yeah. Uh, are you able to like get away from Jebit like on weekends? Are you able, or do you not want to, or like, like, are you able to decompress from it or is it like a baby? Um, 
somewhere in between. Like I, I think I do do a good job of getting away and I'll go on like a hiking trip and, you know, not look at my phone for a couple of days and things like that. I will do some of that, but I a definitely don't do it enough and be like when your trip's ending, you know, like there's a million responsibilities <laughs> yeah. that you're coming back to, you know? Yeah. So, um, I think meditation has really helped me be able to just decompress for those. Well, let's say I'm going away on like a three day backpacking trip. Like I will really not think about or focus on Jabot a ton for those days. I mean, inevitably something will come up while we're, you know, on a hike. Cause you're, that's just how your brain works. Right. Thoughts just like come up, but I, I do genuinely do a good job in those of just kind of letting that thought fade away and like, don't go down the whole path of thinking about our new positioning right now while you're away hiking, like live in the moment and do it. But, um, I work, I work a lot of weekends right now. I work a lot of late nights. Like, I think that's just, that's the reality of, of trying to scale this thing. How do you, uh, or do you have any advice on managing your personal life, uh, along with your, you know, desires professionally? A lot of the college entrepreneurs I try to talk to today, I try to just share, the reality of running a venture back startup, which is sure. There's a lot of things I'm working on and I'm getting better and I'm trying to have better balance, but there's a ton of sacrifices that you make, you know, like it definitely, I've had to learn a lot about, you know, having a strong, a strong relationship as possible with my girlfriend while running this, because like you're doing this all the time and it's just hard on a partner. I don't see like my parents or my grandparents or my siblings or cousins as much as I want. I don't see my friends as much as I want. So like, it's a very real sacrifice. And I think any entrepreneur you talk to that's being honest will, will admit that. And it also takes way longer than you think, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, I for sure, when I left college figured like, Oh, by the time we turn 25, we'll sell this for a billion dollars. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then you get into it and you realize, no, it's actually really hard. And, and, most successful, especially in B2B SaaS, you know, it's one thing I'm sure everyone knows, like the Instagram story, which is still a one in a million story, but like consumer apps can scale faster. Um, you know, most B2B SaaS companies that have a really strong exit, it's like seven, 10, 12 years, whatever it is to build it. And so, you know, that was something that, you know, I just dove into it head first and naive, not, and naive and I've had to learn over time, but I've loved it. Like I wouldn't change anything. I'm just always working on how to have better balance in my life and how to make sure the people that I love and I care about are getting like what they need out of me. Um, and that I'm taking time to like leave and go enjoy being with them, you know, like, um, which in the early days was definitely really hard because there's just so much you want to get done and so much you want to do and you can never get around to your to-do list. And I think over the years, I think I've learned two things. I've learned, you know, one, you're just never going to get around everything on your to-do list, just accept it. And two is just kind of having peace that if you solve the big, most important problems, the rest of the stuff will work itself out. Like you don't have to work out and solve every single little problem. In fact, that's probably, even in the time you put into your company, that's probably not the best use of your energy. It is better to figure out what are the two or three things that if we nail this year are really going to put us on the right path to hit our goals the following year and keep scaling. So it's a always growing journey. And I've definitely had a lot of learnings and made a lot of mistakes over the years, but it's, it's something I think about a lot. I'm also curious about your, uh, you know, if you have any advice on adversity, 
you know, obviously now you guys are doing well, but there were times where, you know, early on two co-founders leave after a summer and you're a young kid. There's times where you completely stopped, you know, I think whatever, 2014, you stop your existing business model to come up with a new idea. Like what makes you not go and quit and, and just go somewhere else, but actually dig up your heels and, you know, stay with the process? I mean, it will sound cliche, but it's all gratitude and perspective, which is true. Like I, when my co-founders quit in college, I remember consciously thinking, but I'm so lucky. I have two more years to try to figure this out while I'm in school. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. I need to like pay for, like, I don't have all these things that like some of these older entrepreneurs I met during that summer at Highland have. Um, when we shut down the business in mid 2014 and had, I don't know, 900K left in the bank or something and had to figure it out. It wasn't like, oh, we failed, we're doomed, whatever. It was like, we have $900,000 to go figure this out. Like, like legitimate respected investors in Boston gave us 900 grand and we can literally come in tomorrow and do whatever we want with it. Like they just gave us their blessing. We, we trust you guys go pivot the business and figure it out. And so it's so easy to get caught in the problems and caught in the negativity, but I've always just tried to like have a bigger perspective and be grateful for, for what we have accomplished or what we do have. And something I was totally just, I guess, ignorant of before, but has become more aware to me in the last few years, as I've talked to more, you know, black entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, uh, women entrepreneurs, things like that is also just like how, easy. I probably had it getting things going, right? Like I'm a white male that grew up in America. I went to BC and I just like came up with this idea and I had investors right there offering me this summer program and this opportunity. And like, obviously don't get me wrong. You just heard the whole story. We worked really hard and we grinded a lot and there's been a lot of late nights, but even just getting that opportunity out of the gate, um, when I was going through it, I was never thinking those things. But now that I've seen how hard it is for an entrepreneur born in a foreign country or an entrepreneur who is, you know, female of color, whatever the other categories might be, like, it's much harder for them to even get that initial crack at a shot, you know, even that initial crack at that. I think about if I didn't get into that first summer, if I wasn't given that first 250K, I probably wouldn't have had the spark to, you know, in the time to actually like go work on it and figure it out. So, uh, yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of things to be grateful for. And I try to focus on those way more than the mistakes we've made, the things we could have done better, all that stuff, which there's a very long list of. (laughs) No, that's, that's an awesome perspective. Um, I, I want to a little bit after want to get into enjoy life education and maybe SSC venture partners before, but before I do that, you know, is there anything else related to, you know, your personal life or your business life uh, or like something that's on your mind or something that no one ever asks you or any general entrepreneurship advice or anything like that, that you would like to, you would like to talk about? Um, I think we've already hit on most of it. I mean, if I were to go deeper on anything, I'd probably go deep on like the importance of what meditation and yoga have done for me and like the just need for really prioritizing your mental health first as an entrepreneur, which there's a much 
bigger growing community of entrepreneurs talking about, but even in the last, you know, 10 years since I've been doing this, it didn't happen nearly as much, you know, a decade ago. Um, you know, Brad Feld is a guy who is one of the Techstars founders who's talked a ton about this. Um, there's a bunch of other entrepreneurs out there, you know, doing it, but I just think that it's like so clear to me, that's first and foremost, if you can nail that and be in a strong place yourself, you know, then you can go figure out all the hard challenges with the business. But if you're struggling there, you know, it's going to be 10 times harder to be the leader your team needs you to be and to just solve the problems you'll need to solve that, you know, are inevitable for every entrepreneur. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about uh, enjoy life education? Yeah, uh, I hit on him earlier. I mentioned my eighth grade science teacher who gave me the quote, what you pin is what you get out, but he's the best teacher I ever had. This guy named Evren Gundes and totally changed my life. He was 22 when he taught me. I was the first class he ever taught. And um, then when I went to BC, he left teaching and went to the Harvard Grad School of Education to get a degree there, um, kind of studying like leadership and adolescent development. But he used our science class to teach us all of his philosophies about life and about leadership. And he really gave me, I think, the confidence and the perspective to actually go start Jebit and to build the team and create the culture. Like when I was talking about that decision earlier of should I just go learn how to code or should I just go learn how to do finance or this or that so I can own that part of the business? I think it was everything I learned from him that really gave me the understanding of how important creating the right team culture was, but then the confidence that I could be the person to do that for our business. And so, uh, yeah, a few years into Jabot, I approached him and I was just like, you have to go create this and turn this into something bigger than just doing this in the classroom in Hopkinton. And he'd been thinking the same thing. He'd been, he'd been wanting to expand it and it had become clear to him. His passion was really in this, um, I guess what it's called now is social and emotional learning. If you're in the education world, there's a whole you know, there's government grants going out now and a whole new wave of we need to teach social and emotional learning, maybe the softer skills, but we didn't know that term at the time. Yeah, we yeah. were just trying to teach what he was teaching that wasn't the science stuff. And so for nine summers now, we've been doing a summer program. It's a residential program uh, on college campuses. And we have high school kids that come from mostly New England, but we have kids that come from all around the world and uh, they get a week long with him and he kind of teaches everything he used to do in our classroom and they come back summer after summer they're on staff when they're in college it's uh you know by far i take a week off every summer to go you know be at the academy uh, we call it the leadership academy that he runs and uh yeah it's just by far my favorite thing that i do so that's yeah. that's enjoy life education yeah and i uh, saw so you co-founded ssc venture partners do you want to talk about that as well? Yeah, that was a different thing that came out really out of me realizing how grateful I was for that summer at Highland with Peter and Dan that we talked about earlier and just realizing how without that summer, I probably don't get Jabot off the ground. And that at most, it's one team from BC every year that gets to go do something like that. So the impetus for SSC Ventures was let's create a summer program just like the Highland one or just like the Techstars program I did but just for BC student entrepreneurs. So let's take five teams in every summer of just BC entrepreneurs and let's 5X the amount of entrepreneurs that actually have a shot. Because I think our learning was the school does an amazing job of taking you from, I'm not even interested in entrepreneurship to I just wrote a business plan and won $10,000. You know, that was my story. 
But then it's just like, good luck. We're going to go back to running the business plan program next year for the next batch of students. And um, just way too hard to go from my 110 grand to have actually started the business without help. And that's why we wanted to help, you know, five times as many BC entrepreneurs. It's been really cool to see that evolve. Um, it's now evolved into a fund. We have over $5 million we manage of alumni investments. Um, and we, we still run that summer program, but we also invest normally fifty dollars to $100,000 in alumni from BC who have started their own company. Um, so you can be, you could have just done our program as a student and you could be raising money and we might give you 100K or you could have graduated 25 years ago and you're now starting a company and we can give you 100K, you know, whatever it might be. And, and we do everything there in between. And uh, Peter Bell, the guy I told you about from Highland is now one of my partners with that. Um, so he left Highland and runs his own venture fund now. It's his full-time job, but it's uh, me and him and a couple other BC alumni that uh, run SSE Ventures now. Awesome. Well, uh, and other than that, I have a ton of free time. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Tom, uh, I just want to acknowledge you. Uh, it's it's really cool hearing your story. Uh, just it's it's really neat to see that uh, you know first that you had a, a group of friends where you share ideas with you know on a weekly basis, and then that turned into something. Um, and though you faced adversity and people not wanting to come on the journey, you stayed optimistic or, uh, you know, through that and, uh, you know, seeing all the pivots that you've made as a company and that, that you know, that can't be easy. Um, and, and continuing to see what it is today, you know, as successful as it, as it is today, where your, your main problem is, is scaling, which is, that's a good problem to have. Uh, so, you know, I, I just want to thank you for, for sharing your story and sharing some of your lessons and, and pieces of advice to everyone out here today. Uh, if, if there's any way for them to support you or Jebit, how can they do so? Yeah, you can just message me on LinkedIn. I check that pretty frequently. And then, uh, yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Okay, cool. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.